Amen. Our reading from God's holy word comes from the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 3. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father in heaven, having heard your word read, we now humble ourselves in its presence, knowing that you are here by your spirit, and knowing that you have kind intentions to reveal yourself to us from this word. Unless you build this house, we who labor, labor in vain. We need you by the spirit right now to give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to understand, and wills to obey. And so we would ask you now to come in the power of that Holy Spirit who long ago hovered over the deep waters, the one who nurtured life upon this earth. We would ask that you would send him to us to be with us and to speak to our hearts words that would transform, truths that would change. Come and meet with us and glorify yourself in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you have heard me say this before, but I just finished in the previous hour one of the things I enjoy most doing here at Cornerstone during the Sunday school hour. We had the beginning of a new session of exploring Cornerstone, which is the class that Uh, We lead here at Cornerstone to tell you about our local congregation. It is our version, you might say, of an inquirer's class. Uh, I love that class, and one of the reasons I love that class and love doing that class is I get to meet new people. I get to hear stories of what it is that the Lord has done. And one of the things that I require in that first class, those of you who may consider taking this class, consider yourself warned. In the first class, I ask you to tell us a little something about yourself, Go back a little ways. Give us some history. Uh, Tell us a little bit of a spiritual glimpse into your life. Give us, of course, your name, and then even answer um, why it is that you're here. Uh, Because normally, when you're entering into an Exploring Cornerstone class or any kind of inquirer's class or a new member's class, you're in some sort of transition. You've moved to the area. You're moving to a different church. There are some life circumstances that likely has you landed here in this class, and it's important for us to acknowledge that, to honor it, to talk about it as we begin that journey together. And inevitably, a question comes up in the midst of that class, something along the lines of, where is it that you're from? Now, sometimes I get asked that question because people hear my accent. When I'm in Greece, for instance, as I was this summer on a mission trip more times than once, they said, you're not from around this place called Greece, are you? Where are you from? And I found myself there not saying something like from Mississippi, which is true, I would say from the United States. 
not knowing how much they really knew about this little sliver of the United States known as Mississippi. But for you, Middle Tennessee folk, if you were to ask me, hey, where are you from? I'd say Mississippi. I might even go deeper. I might say Laurel, Mississippi. I might get down to the little outskirts of the suburbs that I'm in, knowing that you have deeper knowledge of where it is that I'm from and knowing that in telling you, you get even a deeper insight into who I am. We love that question, where it is that you're from, because we think that it teaches us so much about a person. Where it is that they're from tells us something about what we can expect about who it is that they are. But more than ethnic indicators or geography or educational background or our parentage or or family lineage, the Bible tells us the story of really where it is that we've come from. And most of us don't begin with this story, mind you. We start with a little town in Mississippi or Tennessee. We start talking about our parents and the food we eat and the clothes that we like to wear and the teams that we go for as we prepare for the national championship tomorrow night. That tells us about who it is that we are, and that's in the context of where it is that we find ourselves. But the the fact of the matter is, who it is that we are is not located in those physical things. It's located at a deeper level in the spiritual yearnings of your heart. The, The longings to find a place where you're at peace in the world. Where the things that have been done wrong to you are made right. And where all the things that are wrong about you are finally corrected. It's those deeper spiritual longings that get to the core of who it is that we really are, which means that the story about your life doesn't begin in a little town in Mississippi or Tennessee or wherever it is in the world that the Lord has brought you from. It begins with the words, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, when we begin the study of the Bible... We're beginning the story of what it means to be a human being. And it gets to the very center of why it is that we are the way we are, warts and all. It gets to the very core of the essence of both what it was we were supposed to be and where it is we were to be at home and why it is that we're not at home. As G.K. Chesterton often says, he finds himself homesick even at home. As if even in the places of our greatest comfort, in the places where we ought to be who it is that we are and feel like that were the case, we often find that that's not the case. It's as if we're from a place that we've never been, but of which we have most certainly been shaped to be in. When we come to the story of Genesis, we come to that kind of story, and what we find is... Genesis tells us, especially here in the creation narrative, that what is most core about us has nothing to do with us. It's not about this flesh or, or even, or, or even the, the scheme of where it is that we're from or the history that precedes us in our family lineage. It, it tells us that what's most true about us and what's most core about us and what needs to be known about us more than anything is that we were made by God. Which another way of saying is what's most important about you is nothing about you, but about the God who made you. Which is why this story of the Bible doesn't open with your name or with mine, but opens with God's name. In the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. That name God, that almost title we might refer to it as here in chapter 1 happens 35 times. Do we hear the name of God just in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis? You know what this book is trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us that if you go looking in this book for you, you probably won't find it because this book is not about you. This book is about God. But if you were to find God in this book, you'd find all you need to know about you. All you need to know about you. And that's important for many of us as we begin 2018. And we don't do another personality test or get another psychological evaluation. But maybe that we stare into the face of the living God as He's revealed Himself in the Word and find that in knowing Him, we know all that we need to know. One of the fundamental questions then, biblical interpretation, is not whether I like this verse or not. What does this verse say to me? Or not, eventually we might get around to such questions. But the most fundamental question of all is what does this verse, what does this passage, what does this book say about God? And this passage, these few three verses at the opening of Genesis tell us very important things about God, which in turn tell us very important things about us, which further tell us very important things for 2018 for the way in which we live our lives before the face of God this year. It tells us about God's presence. It tells us about God's power. And it tells us about God's purpose. We see all three of those things right here embedded in what are some of the most mysterious verses in all of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Let's look at it together. I want you to see first the presence of God as He is revealed here in the pages Genesis chapter 1. I want you to see that the presence of God is there before anything else is there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when Moses was first pinning these words or orally dictating these words, it was probably somewhere in the mid-1500s B.C., a long time ago. He was doing it within the context of a, of a pagan surrounding, a surrounding that was fully pantheistic, seeing God in nature, God in the tree, God in the moon, God in the sun and the stars. The people of Israel, at the point in which he's writing, have just come out of Egypt, a polytheistic nation who'd worshipped many gods. Moses, by God, through his revelation, is being charged with writing the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And he starts in Genesis telling the people of God about who it was that brought them out of the land of Egypt. Who is this God who with wondrous signs parted the Red Sea and is now raining bread from heaven and giving water from a rock? They'd been redeemed by this one God, this Elohim. The term used here in Genesis chapter 1, this powerful, majestic, transcendental God, high above everything, ruling and reigning over creation, not held captive by creation as the Egyptians would have taught and as many of the Israelites would have likely been influenced by and maybe even held captive to. Now, Moses is writing and he is teaching them about the presence of God before creation and he wants you to know that the God who really made it all, who is the source of everything that is, 
is a singular God. He is asserting something that would have been so countercultural in his day. Monotheism. One God. There is only one God in the universe, in the world of which everything came from. The myths of the pagan nations would have taught absolutely the opposite. That it was through the lovemaking of the myths of the gods, through warfare and turf warfare that caused the separation of heaven and earth and many other crazy stories about the origins of where things came from. And Moses is saying, I want you to know the God that brought you out of Egypt is not the God of Egypt. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is the one who is over all. Now the importance of this for the people of Israel was central. They were going to have to be a people now following this Elohim, later revealed as Yahweh, this powerful covenantal God who has brought his people unto himself. They were going to have to uphold to his standard, walk according to his way, believe in his promises against all of the external pressures of the world around them. Don't we see in the narrative of the Old Testament the pressures that the people of Israel often experienced and gave in to those pressures, did they not, of becoming like other nations? Don't you remember that in the book of Judges, for instance? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Oh, we want a king like all of the other nations, seeking, as it were, to become like everybody else, to be accepted like everybody else, to fit in like everybody else. Oh, how things have changed so dramatically. In the thousands of years since the writing of the book of Genesis. Do you see, monotheism is just as countercultural today as it was then. Uh, go ahead. Uh, blog in the open academic world and argue for the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. It'll be widely accepted. Of course not. Now, this teaching here in the book of Genesis embedded the deep essential truths of the distinctiveness of the God of Christianity is just as countercultural today as it was during the time of the people of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, which is why we need to hear it afresh. Because we don't think too much about the monotheism of Christianity, the exclusivity very much of Christianity. Many of us in this room have actually been raised in the faith. It's kind of been the air that we've breathed. But what we sometimes find, isn't it, is when we engage with the external world and they give plausible arguments for other ways of conceiving and understanding the origins of the universe and the meaning of life that we find ourselves not ready to give a defense for the faith. We need to come back to the pages of Scripture. You see, the people of Israel actually created a confession around this very doctrine, what was known as the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It was their Apostles' Creed, we might argue. They, they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. You see, that was the distinctive thing. Friends, in many ways, we need to go back to the Shema. Because even if we don't argue or think... There are many ways, as it were, up the mountain we live like there are. We live serving many other gods. Gods of pleasure, gods of achievement, gods of power, gods of accolade, gods of approval. We, we come to church on Sunday morning and we say we believe in the Lord God Almighty, the one God, the maker of heaven and earth, and we serve all kinds of gods during the week. It's no real difference than going to the temple as the people of Israel did and sacrificed and then going out into the world and perpetrating all kinds of injustice and sins. See, the more things change, the more they really stay the same. This is why the book of Genesis is as current as today's newspaper. 
and as important in 2018 as it was in the 1500s B.C. when Moses was originally writing it. One quick note of application, if this is true, if this God is the maker of heaven and earth, the only one God, then He is worthy then for us to know because it's likely that if we've come from Him, we're going to see Him again. It's likely that if He's always been around, that He's probably not going anywhere soon. If He was before creation, He would be after it. And if He was before that we ever lived, then it's quite possible He'll be after we live. C.T. Studd, the great missionary who went to China and India in the late 1800s, understood that this argument from Scripture regarding the, the exclusivity of the God of the Bible, the one God who made and created all things, convinced him that he should align his life with the purposes of this God. He understood that if all has come from this God, then all needs to be aligned to the wishes and the purposes of this God if enduring impact is going to be made. And so he wrote that quite famous poem, Only One Life Twill Soon Be Passed. Some of you know it. One of the stanzas is this. Give me, a fa- give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, if that's not a prayer for your year ahead, I don't know what is. Uh, that in this one life that will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last is the acknowledgement that the God in whom Christ has been sent from and in whom Christ is, is right now sitting on the throne. And He will make every enemy a footstool for His feet. And there will come a day where everyone will acknowledge Him to be King and Lord over all. And if that's the case then the best thing we can do in 2018 is to align ourselves to His purposes. What does that mean for you this year? What does that mean for you this year? What are the many idols of the so-called Egyptians in modern North American culture that you're serving day in and day out, functionally speaking? What are the things you're going to run to after Sunday morning's service that are going to nullify and desensitize you to the realities of the truth that we're going to discover today? Where is it that you really run? What is your functional Savior? What do you think is going to be the source of your happiness? Find the purpose and the meaning in your life. Don't answer churchly. Answer really. Answer as your heart tells you. And you have your mission for 2018. That God would be the end of that answer. Well, not only do we see the presence of God in this passage, we see the power of God in this passage. You see that there uh, quite clearly in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, we, we like to speak of ourselves as powerful, and there is a sense in which we are powerful. God has in His faithfulness stewarded to us a measure of power. We've been made in the image of God. There are things you're able to do and accomplish. There's impact and influence that you're able to wield and have. That's good. That's part of what it means to be reflective of of who it is that God is. But whatever it is that we're able to do, whatever power we're able to have, it's stewarded to us. It's not inherent within us. 
It's not something that we have in the terms of our being. It means it's something that God has given to us because we are part of His creation. And right here we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 this this very fundamental theological distinction. Scholars like to call it the creator-creature distinction. Let me show you how it works right here. We create things, but we create things out of things, from things, from the stuff, the materiality of this world. Let me tell you the kind of creation that we see here, the kind of creation that's displayed in verse 3, for instance, where God through verbal fiat, just simply the speaking of words and things appear. I don't know about you, it's something I've not been able to practice. I wish I could. I wish I could say something and it just happened. It would just save us all a whole lot of trouble if I could do that, right? If we had that kind of power to be able to accomplish those kinds of ends, but the reality is uh, creating light is really different than creating the light bulb. You know, Thomas Edison, he had at his disposal that really nice wire filament and an electrical charge and glass that it could be encased, and he found out that if you warm all of these things together, that it'll glow. Uh, But putting those things together is very different than saying, let there be light. The quality of the creative power of God is fundamentally different than our own. It's why we call God a creator and we call ourselves inventors. It's taking the things that God has actually given to us and making something with it. That's not the case here with God. God creates, as the scripture shows us, ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. That's the idea of creation here in Genesis chapter 1. It's the Hebrew word bara. This word create is only ever with reference to God. You won't find it ever with reference to man because it has no reference to man. Its reference is exclusively to God. Only he brings forth things out of nothing. And let me, just, let me pause to just tell you how amazing that is because for some of you, you're like, yes, I remember studying this kindergarten. I, I studied this, but you know how we often think of it? We often think of God, he imagines a rock, and he speaks rock, and we imagine it appearing. But you know what you're assuming in all of that? You're assuming space. And space wasn't created. Right now, think of nothing. Just think of nothing. You can do it. You can do it. Let me tell you what it looks like. It looks black in your mind, right? It looks black. There's, There's nothing. The problem is the minute you conceived of nothing, it was something which is not what's in view here. We've never seen nothing. We, we don't know what nothing really is. Because all our experience is within the concept of space and time. What we see God actually doing here is creating the thing that we are encapsulated inside of. He's creating space and time. His power is so great that though there's absolutely nothing, he creates space and time and then breaks into it. It's a world that he is not within, where it's a construct that we have to submit to. It's like the laws of gravity in terms of the way they work with a human being. We're held captive to them. We can't just will ourselves with power against it. God creates Ex nihilo, he creates out of nothing. And what we see is that it actually gives us a glimpse into the mystery of the creating of space and time even before he speaks a word, the word light. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, that actually leads us to our last point. His presence and his power 
ultimately gets us to his purposes. And we see his purposes embedded in what I believe is one of the more mysterious verses in all of Scripture. Verse 2, marvelously rich here. The earth was without form or void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Got it? No, you don't. What in the world did I just read? Let me read it again so you can feel the wonder. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. If I might say so, Moses is here straining to give us a picture, a glimpse into the creation of space and time before we see the unfolding of what will be God's order, of what we see as God's order. How do I know that? Well, let's look at these funny little words, form and, and void. In fact, they're the, they're the most fun of any Hebrew word that you would ever learn, okay? So children, you're going to want to use this on your parents at some point. So, you know, just learn this word. And then over lunch today, we can do a little Hebrew together. The words uh, form and void are in Hebrew, tohu wabohu. That is awesome. Isn't that fun to say? Tohu wabohu. That's a form and void, meaning to say that this Creation of space and time in its, in its original, as it were, kind of the, the palette of paint before the painter begins to paint. As he pulls together space and time, it is a place that has no shape and it is empty. It has no form and it is entirely vacant. It's a, it's a term that's actually used to describe later in the scriptures of an uninhabited wasteland. It's a place that's not fit yet for life. I even use this, the, the, the language here of, of waters. It's darkness over the deep, a word that's used for the sea. We know it's a word used for waters because what's the final section of that verse? The, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. It's a parallel terminology. It's a primeval ocean. Now, was it really like water? Well, yes, possibly. I wasn't there. I didn't, I didn't see it. The image is water. But what was water an image of for all of the people of Israel? A place of instability, chaos, a place that needed to be ordered, where strength needed to be garnered, where life needed to come from. It's the thing they most feared. At the beginning of time in the creation of space, this tohu wabohu, this uninhabited, unliving thing of space and time, God has made, and in the midst of it, He is preparing to bring forth through His spoken word, as we see in verse 3, the ordering and the livingness, what we'll see next week as the forming and the filling of the entirety of the created order. I love the way Umberto Casuto put it because I think it's faithful to the text. This raw materiality, he says, it's like the potter when he wishes to fashion a vessel. He takes the lump of clay and he places it upon the wheel and he molds it according to his wish so that the creator first prepared for himself space and time, the raw material from which he will bring forth the order and the life from. So where's the purpose in all of that? Because that feels pretty chaotic. It's hard to get our hands around that. Is that kind of shadowy to you? 
It's in the midst of this presence and this power that this purposefulness begins to arise because of the most beautiful images given to us at the final part of verse 2. We're told that the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. What in the world is going on here? Now, last year, it was back in the spring, this little robin bird built a nest right outside our kitchen window, right underneath kind of the satellite dish of our neighbors in the crook of the fence. And we were all excited, you know, built the nest, laid the eggs, blue eggs, just amazing. And we're, you know, every day kind of peeking out there, what stage are we at? And then, and then you know, finally hatching day comes, right? And the squeaky little things, you know, break out of the... And they're really, friends, they're really ugly. They're like tohu wabohu, kind of. Like, you know, they have a few little feathers on them, and they're really, you know, fleshy-like, and they're just funny-looking. And, and, but what you see the mother bird continue to do is, is leave the, the nest and come back with a fresh sampling of worms, Right? And a lot of times the robin bird wouldn't just swoop in and drop them in, but she would hover for a minute. She'd hang over them with the, uh, the, the wind of her wings, and she'd drop the nutrients that they needed to live in order to be formed and to be filled into what it is that they were to become. It's the same image here. The Spirit of the Lord is described here in the most vivid language of a bird hovering over the nascent, unformed, and empty creation as he in time and space and history seeks to bring forth the life of the created order. Now, when you begin to picture that, maybe you begin to see that this purpose of God in creation is greater as you begin to see the unfolding of the biblical narrative. You see, it's the same language that's used later of the glory cloud that comes in and overshadows the temple. When God meets with His people in the presence of God, it's the same language of Luke one thirty-five. When we are told that the Spirit of God will come upon you and the Mighty One shall overshadow you. It's the prophecy of the angel to Mary. At the moment when she, as a, a virgin, is being told that what is mysterious is that there's something that's going to be formed in you and you're going to be filled and it's not the normal way. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you as a nurturing bird. This Elohim with all power is going to come with gentleness. And he's going in that moment through what he will bear in your womb, in the darkness of that uninhabitable place. He will bring forth the answer for the redemption of his people. He will, in a sense, recreate the world. He will recreate the world. And isn't it so? Simeon certainly thought so. That that is, in one sense, the speaking of the new creation into life. For Simeon himself has said in Luke chapter 2, My eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord is prepared for all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And glory for your people Israel. Isn't it fair to say that in that first epiphany, 
the magi coming from the east, following, as it were, looking into an uninhabitable darkness, see a star, a light that leads them to the light of the world. And is it not surprising then that this word for the Spirit of God is indeed the wind of God or the breath of God? And was it not God who in verse 3 of Genesis 1 pushed breath, as it were, out of his lips and he said, let there be light and there was light and was not Jesus the one at the beginning of creation who spoke those words as John told us at the opening of his gospel. He in the beginning was the word and the word was made flesh. Are we not seeing in some sense the one who spoke, let there be light, become as it were embodied light for a people who are trapped in darkness? to come into the form and the fullness of what it is we've been made for. You see, that's the story of the gospel narrative. This Jesus, the light of the world, walking in a darkness so that we, the people of God, might experience His light. It's why Jesus, the light of the world, had to experience insufferable darkness on our behalf. In Matthew's recounting of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, as he's there giving up his spirit, declaring that he has finished the work that he has been come to accomplish, it's in that moment we're told that darkness falls over everything. And earthquakes happen. And weirdly, graves open up. And almost something of a, of a weird apocalyptic vampire moment. That's how we would conceive of it. But it's actually the glorious foretaste of the light of the world coming under conquerable darkness and through His power overcoming it. So much so that the deepest darkness of death can't even hold the graves any longer. And the teemingness of life, what looks like decreating, is actually the new world breaking in. The new creation bubbling up, as it were, from the surface of the crust of the earth. As Jesus, the second Adam, the God who spoke all things into being, is recreating heaven and earth. You know, he's doing that with you. You see, every time that the Word of God comes, and especially in its first and most powerfully transformative and converting moment, is, as it were, a moment where God is saying to you, let there be light, and there's light. It is a moment in which the bird of heaven, the Holy Spirit, comes and overshadows you with His presence, and He nurtures in the dark recesses of your heart a life that you could no other, no other ways have. That's what's happening. And as we walk through life, every turn the page of Scripture and every obedient step towards His command and every time the veils fall and every time that your eyes behold on the horizon the truth of who Christ is, a little bit more of the light breaks in. It's why Paul, using creation as his reference point, can say, let there be light. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our heart to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's our call as we walk into 2018. More light, more hovering of the Spirit, more recreative glory, more of the things that we're, that we're needing to be, less of the things that we are. Or in Christ, more of the things that we are. For we are the people of light. We've been clothed with righteousness. We have His white and glorious robes as white as snow. And each and every day by His grace, He renews that covenant promise to us. And one day He is taking you home to the place that you've always known that you were from and you've never been. And when you get there, it won't exactly be that place. It'll be better. For the Garden of Eden has become, by the pages of Revelation, the New Jerusalem. And we're told in Revelation chapter 21 that when we get there, you know what it says? There will be no more sea. And I don't think it means for you water lovers, no water is going to be there. No more uninhabited. No more unformed. No more primeval ocean. And no more sun. Because there the light will forever shine. For the Lamb will be the light of the new heavens and the new earth. And until the day that that light dawns, it is our prayer to walk in and labor for the growing of that light in here and out there to the coming of Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, meet us in this truth. Meet us in the power of it. Meet us in the transformation that can come from it. You taking our darkness and turning it into light. You bringing us into the depths, overshadowing us with your presence, speaking light into our lives. We come dependent, we come needy, but we come hopeful, knowing that you, the Father of lights, give all good gifts to your children. Would you give us the gift of Jesus over and over and over this year? And let the Spirit hover long and let the light grow bright until it brightens all that there is. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, the light of the world. Amen. Let's stand and sing.